Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Rob Hollow talks about pulsar viewing at parks for pupils. But first up, here's the news about SETI signals and encoded E. coli. Fast radio bursts return. Astronomers have detected 15 powerful radio bursts from the same location in a galaxy 3 billion light-years away. The privately funded Breakthrough Listen project uses the DISH radio telescope in Parks and the Green Bank radio telescope in West Virginia to scan the sky for signs of extraterrestrial technologies. The project is observing the million stars closest to Earth and the hundred nearest galaxies. The Breakthrough Listen project was launched in 2015 by Professor Stephen Hawking and funded by Russian internet billionaire Yuri Milner. Fast radio births are brief, bright pulses of radio emission from distant galaxies. Guesses for the causes of fast radio bursts range from outbursts of rotating neutron stars with extremely strong magnetic fields to alien spacecraft. The bursts aren't thought to be alien signals, because they're broadcast so widely and powerfully that they'd be a huge waste of energy compared to a signal directed at just who you want to communicate with. The fast radio burst FRB 121102 was discovered on the 2nd of November in 2012, hence its name. In 2015 it was seen again, which means that the first burst was not caused by a star exploding. The stars we know about only get to self-destruct once. In 2016, the repeater was the first fast radio burst to have its location pinpointed. It resides in a dwarf galaxy about 3 billion light years away from Earth. On the 26th of August 2017, the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia accumulated 400 terabytes of data on the object over five hours observing the entire 4 to 8 gigahertz frequency band. This large data set was searched for signatures of short pulses from the source over a broad range of frequencies, with a characteristic dispersion or delay as a function of frequency caused by the presence of gas in the space between us and the source. The distinctive shape that the dispersion gives the initial pulse allows astronomers to calculate an estimate of the amount of material between us and the source, which is an indicator of the distance to the galaxy hosting the unknown source of the 15 fast radio bursts. When these radio pulses left their host galaxy, our entire solar system was just 2 billion years old. Life on Earth consisted of only single-celled organisms, and it would be another billion years before even the simplest multicellular life began to evolve. 
By changing the way we look at stars, the Breakthrough Listen project is helping us develop a better understanding of the universe. Whether the fast radio bursts turn out to be caused by a new kind of astronomical object or alien technologies. And thanks to E&M from Sydney for tipping me off about that story. Piracy in a Petri Dish Researchers led by Professor George Church at Harvard Medical School in Boston have encoded a short movie into the nucleic bases making up DNA in living cells and had them reproduce, copying the movie recording. Using the CRISPR-Cas gene editing toolkit, they first demonstrated that they could encode and retrieve a still image of the human hand in DNA inserted into bacteria. Using the same technique, they next encoded and reconstructed photo frames from a classic 1870s movie of a racehorse in motion, an early forerunner of moving pictures. CRISPR-Cas is a group of proteins and DNA that act as an immune system in some bacteria, vaccinating them with genetic memories of viral infections. When a virus infects a bacterium, CRISPR-Cas cuts out the part of the foreign DNA and stores it in the bacteria's own genome. The bacteria then uses the stored DNA to recognise the virus and defend against future attacks. This cutting and pasting has been harnessed so that feeding new strands of DNA to E. coli bacteria causes them to incorporate the new DNA of our choice into their own genome. The researchers created strands of synthetic DNA in the lab that encoded the location and shade of grey of pixels from individual photos using the nucleic bases guanine, adenine, thymine and cytosine, G-A-T and C. When cells of E. coli were fed the strands of DNA, the bacteria treated the strips of DNA like invading viruses and automatically added them to their own genomes. Edward Mybridge's groundbreaking photos in the 1870s showed life in motion, settling an argument that a long-divided trainers and riders, do all four hooves of a racehorse ever leave the ground at once? The answer is yes, but the horse's hooves leave the ground while they're all pulled in, not outstretched as people had imagined. He collected the images on photographic glass plates and displayed them on a device called the Zoopraxiscope. Over the course of five days, the Harvard researchers sequentially treated the bacteria with each photo frame of translated DNA. Afterwards, they were able to reconstruct the five frames of the movie with 90% accuracy by sequencing the bacteria's DNA. One gram of single-stranded DNA could potentially encode 100 billion DVDs. The goal of the researchers is to develop a system that makes neurons record a molecular history of brain development without invasive procedures. The work was published as a letter in the journal Nature, titled CRISPR-Cas encoding of a digital movie into the genomes of a population of living bacteria. The cells are small, but the potential is huge. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia 
on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Pulsars. Rob Hollow is the Education and Outreach Specialist at CSIRO Astronomy and Space Science. I visited him in the Telescope Remote Control Centre at CSIRO in Marsfield and began by asking him, what is Pulse at Parks? So Pulse at Parks is an educational program that we run. It was developed here at CSIRO and essentially it provides high school students the opportunity to control the iconic 64 metre Parks radio telescope in real time. They do it remotely over the internet and they observe these amazing bizarre objects called pulsars, gather some data and then uh, analyse their data. So they get to control a giant radio telescope at Parks? That's right. So Parks Telescope, I guess, is truly an icon of Australian science. It's over 50 years old, but due to regular upgrades, it's still very much a cutting-edge instrument. It's a very versatile instrument, and one of the things we use it for a lot is to observe pulsars. And this program was a spin-off from that. We were looking for a way to engage with high school students, introduce them to radio astronomy, give them an observational experience and the ability to meet with scientists and learn more about the cosmos. Does it take much training to control a telescope? Well, it doesn't take them much training. We have, whenever they're actually observing, we have our staff and some astronomers available. Actually, once you're shown how to control the telescope, it's remarkably straightforward. There's obviously a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes in terms of our scheduling files and the software and everything. But to get it from one pulsar to another, once they're shown how, is, is pretty straightforward. And what sort of things do they get back on the screen? So the project's been running almost 10 years now. So in fact, it'll be 10 years in December. And our project's evolved as our understanding of how students relate to the data has evolved. We've developed a live online Pulsar data monitor as a spin-off from the project. And that's now the standard thing used routinely in all our, well, most of our Pulsar observations and indeed used, I believe, in the telescope over in Germany. So they've adapted it for their use. So that's been very handy. So that shows us all sorts of things coming down. It shows the signal strength, shows frequency, frequency against time. We can show what we call a, a folded pulse profile. So we get the shape of the Pulsar and all sorts of other things. We also have live webcam view so that when they press the buttons on the control software they see a thousand tonnes of metal and electronics moving so they actually watch the dish move in real time. We've got displays that show where the telescope is pointing, where it's tracking across the sky, where the wind is coming from, where the galactic plane is, all sorts of various bits of feedback that provide information for the astronomer and or in this case the student. Is this part of the HSC curriculum? It's not specifically part of the HSC curriculum. Currently in New South Wales, although ending this year, the syllabus that's been running since about 2000 has included an astrophysics option for final year physics students. But this program is actually aimed at students typically in years 10 through 12. So it's not specific to one or two syllabus requirements. We view it much more as an extension or engagement activity to really inspire students in science, give them an amazing uh, for most of them a one-off experience, although some have gone on to do further investigations, but to give them an opportunity to experience science in action, to meet with our scientists and some of our PhD students and actually learn what's good about science, what can be frustrating, some of the pitfalls of observational science, things happening in real time, but also get you know to see some amazing equipment in operation. It's a free program, but we are limited in the number of schools that we can fit in. We normally have one slot a month. 
we have had special slots, so we've done them for some teacher conferences, international conferences. We just did a demonstration session at the Asia-Pacific Regional IAU meeting, and myself and our project scientist, Dr George Hobbs, are off to Cape Town in South Africa in a week's time, and we're doing a week-long series of workshops and observing sessions for high school students, undergraduates and postgraduate students in South Africa, which will be very exciting. But for a typical session here, once the school's been selected, I would normally go to the school a few weeks ahead of the observing time, give them an introductory talk, talk about pulsars, radio astronomy, what they're going to do, and so forth. Plenty of time for questions. Then on the day they come, get a bit more of a background briefing, and then we typically have two hours of telescope time. Students are split into small groups. Each group gets to observe a few pulsars, and then they also get to analyse their data. We've got a free online module that anybody can access that they then analyse their data and with that they basically determine the distance and position of the pulsar within our galaxy, which is, is very exciting. And where would people look for this free online module? All the information is available via the Pulse at Parks website, which is pulseatparks, that's all one word, dot atnf dot au. When the students, if those students who do want to go on to do astronomy where should they be studying? Should they just be doing a physics degree or should they be doing a specialised degree? Well, I'm personally, I'm a great fan of generalist first degree, so a Bachelor of Science. I guess the traditional pathway for people that want to be an astronomer is they typically go to university, do a Bachelor of Science with a physics major, and then go and do honours and then a PhD. But, you know, that's only the traditional or the, I guess the obvious pathway. There, are, And if you look at our staff here, there are many different ways by which people have come into being professional astronomers or in associated support areas such as myself. But certainly a grounding in physics, a grounding in maths and a grounding in computing would be the three things that I strongly recommend students do. So whilst, you know, a lot of schools... Most schools should be offering physics and the maths. We also encourage students to develop some coding skills if they have opportunity. And, of course, we're seeing that um, support for that more widely now, the awareness that coding is, is a very handy, transferable skill. Um, we also encourage them to do the highest level maths and, you know, a range of the science courses. Can you tell me something about the pulsars that they're looking at at Parks? So pulsars are, well in my mind, one of the most amazing objects in the universe. It's basically the end stage of a massive star. So typically a star, about 20 times the mass of our sun, lives fast, dies young, goes out with a bang as a supernova, so most of the material is ejected out into space. What is left is typically about 1.4 times the mass of the sun. And the outward radiation pressure is turned off, so that the, the main force acting on it is gravitation. So it pulls the remaining material inwards. And the gravity is so strong that the electrons get, essentially, the electrons get forced right into the nucleus of an atom, where they essentially fuse with protons. And what you are left with is this beautifully named neutron degenerate matter. So this is probably the densest form of matter short of a black hole. If the collapsing remnant was more than about three solar masses, it would keep collapsing down to form a black hole. So this is the thing before a black hole. So these are spinning neutron stars? That's right. So all the pulsars are neutron stars. Now, when neutron stars first form, they're spinning very rapidly. They're conserving the angular momentum. You've got an object the size of the sun, which rotates roughly once a month. You pack that down. In the case of a pulsar, these things are literally only 10 to 20 kilometres across. So they're spinning much faster, about once to dozens or hundreds of times a second. They've got these in two intense beams of radiation, and their spin axis and their 
radiation beam axis are not aligned, just as they're not with the magnetic and geographical poles you know, on Earth. And so if one of those beams of radiation happens to swing past us here on Earth, we can pick it up as a pulse. And so what else can the students see through the radio telescope at Parks? Well, for our particular project, that's all they see. They don't, we never actually see the pulsar itself. We see the data, the, the signal from the pulsar. So these things are incredibly small. It's 10 kilometres across somewhere in our Milky Way galaxy, hundreds of thousands of light years away. Um, but, of course, Parks is a very flexible, versatile instrument. So with it, you can, uh, we can map the uh, distribution of hydrogen gas in our galaxy and in other galaxies. We can determine the amount of gas in galaxies. We have other astronomers that would focus on specific spectral lines. So they're looking at things like ammonia, or you might be looking at mazes, which are giant clouds of gas that sort of emit much like a, uh, in microwaves, but just as a, a laser does here on Earth. Is there anything visible optically of these pulsars? There have been, for a few of the nearby pulsars, there have been a few that have been observed optically, but very, very few. These, the vast majority of pulsars, at the moment, we, have, we know of uh, two, over 2,700 confirmed. Over half of those, well over half of those, were discovered using the Parkes Telescope, so it's been a major instrument in the history of pulsar science. They also emit in X-rays and some emit in gamma rays, but the vast majority were discovered as radio pulsars. And will the Parkes Radio Telescope change its role with the upcoming Square Kilometre Array? So Parkes has now actually been designated a SKA Pathfinder. So it's one of the telescopes that we are using to develop some technologies that may become incorporated in the SKA. So we were testing a new receiver out at Parkes last week on the first test run and it went very well. We've got plans for another major new receiver to go on parks. If we get funding for that, that will be a cryogenic path for phased array feed. In a sense, a sort of a next generation of the phased array feeds that were developed for the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, our brand new telescope in outback Western Australia. So parks is a very strong future for the next few years. We've got some very innovative technology going on and some major science programs ongoing and planned. Are there any other programs you'd like to talk about? CSIRO Astronomy and Space Science, we've got the uh, Parkes Telescope obviously which has a fantastic visitor centre, worth a visit. We've also got the Australia Telescope Compact Array at Narrabri and that has a visitor displays, it's not staffed but uh, it's got a nice picnic venue and people can drop in and have a look there. We've also got a radio telescope at Mopra near Coonabarabran but that's not accessible to the public. We run for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, we, we run the Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex down in Tidbinbilla just outside of Canberra and that's one of the three NASA deep space network stations globally and it's a major facility, its, its prime role is uh, spacecraft tracking and communication for anything beyond Earth orbit. So next month uh, we're going to be prime receiving station for the Cassini end of mission. So on the uh, evening and night of uh, Friday, September the 15th, the Cassini space probe is going to be deorbited and we're going to be getting the information live through Tibimbilla. So there'll be a social media event down there and that'll all be broadcast live via NASA TV as well. And of course our other major facility is over in Western Australia at the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory, the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder. It's one of two major telescopes there. There's also the Murchison Widefield Array that's a low frequency uh, telescope. ASCAP's been Australia's largest science project over the last decade. We've got 36 12 metre antennas there and we're in the final stages of commissioning and we, you know, plans is for that to be fully operational by the end of the year. So that's very exciting and of course 
the MRO out there will be the site for the Square Kilometre Array Low, which will be the low frequency component of the world's biggest radio telescope, the Square Kilometre Array. And the Square Kilometre Array is going to go not just across a larger part of, of Australia, it also extends to Africa? Well, in fact, the Square Kilometre Array is two telescopes in Africa. So the core site will be in the Karoo province in South Africa, and that will be what's called SKA Mid, and that will have a few hundred 15-metre dish antennas. SKA Low will have of the order of 100,000 or so low-frequency antennas, and these are non-moving. They're still finalising the final design for those, but in Phase 1, they'd be of the order of 100,000 of these deployed over many tens of kilometres in the MRO site. And about how big would each of these units be? Well, the antennas, they're sort of like a metal Christmas tree is one design at the moment. The exact design may change, but it's sort of of that sort of scale or concept at the moment. Obviously, when you're building 100,000 of them, you want to, you know, there's a lot of design work to sort of maximise the efficiencies in terms of deployment, engineering, construction and so forth. And so they're testing uh, various prototypes and... uh, believe you know hopefully they'll soon sign off on the final design. Is there any SETI search for extraterrestrial intelligence research happening? So in fact the world's biggest search for extraterrestrial intelligence is currently underway and we're involved in that. A group called the Breakthrough Foundation in the US, it's um, basically a bunch of Silicon Valley billionaires of funding big question science and challenges that, you know, traditional funding agencies might not port. And they funded a thing called Breakthrough Listen. It's a $100 million project over five years um, to search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And a key component of that is using time on major radio telescopes in the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere. And they've bought 25% of the observing time on parks over five years for this process. So we've been involved with them, supporting them. We've been installing equipment at parks. We've been doing upgrades at parks as part of that. And that project's well and truly underway. We started at parks in October last year. We're, and as the search develops and we're ramping up the, or they're ramping up the, the ability and the uh, gathering the data there. So that's a long-term project. Uh, very exciting project, potentially, if you think of if they do find something. So well, stay tuned. So I think we've got some very exciting times in astronomy in Australia. I've just become a strategic partner with the European Southern Observatory. ASCAP's uh, about to come online fully. Got new instruments, new opportunities, both optical and radio and other, other types of astronomy. So it's an exciting time. We're looking forward to lots of uh, interesting discoveries over the next decade. Well, Rob Hollow, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. That was Rob Hollow at the Commonwealth Science and Industrial Research Organisation's Astronomy and Space Science Division. Find out more about Pulse at Parks by browsing Pulse at Parks, or one word, dot A-T-N-F dot C-S-I-R-O dot A-U. Our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else 
at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. That's from Carl Sagan's Cosmos. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. Just try it out. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons in supporting the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the Community Radio Network including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, ACCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station, and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man, knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits, photography, collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.